You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Welcome to Tone Benders. My name is Renee Coronado, and with me today it is a special guest, Martin Stig Anderson. So Martin was the uh, sound designer, composer, audio director for a bunch of uh, just super iconic games, including Limbo, Inside, Wolfenstein, Shadow of the Tomb Raider, and uh, the latest one, Control, where he was a composer. And uh, from the very beginning, you were involved in some games that were just utterly iconic. And I'd love to start with where you started before Limbo. When you were back in school, your background is as a composer, is that right? Uh, yeah, before I started on Limbo, I like going all the way back. I've always been uh, playing music and, and things like that, but never thought of something that you could make up, kind of taught that it was not something that you could make a living of. You know? So um, I was just playing in bands and stuff, but... At some point, I got interested in orchestral music. I ran into, uh, I think it was uh, Ravel, Daphne, and Chloe, and uh, I got totally fascinated by this big instrument. And then I realized it actually was a thing that you could go to conservatory and study composition. So I started to pursue that, and I said to myself at some point, because I was doing all kind of work not related to music and then playing in my spare time, but I thought, okay, I'll give myself like two years and then just study, you know, and able to get into the conservatory. It was quite difficult to get in there. And that was in, in Aarhus in Denmark. Um, eventually, I, I managed to get into the conservatory there. And although throughout my career, I've been changing passes all the time. So I think already when I came in there, I was more into like electroacoustic composition and, and things like that. But I did a couple of orchestral pieces and ensemble work. And then I started to get very interested in electroacoustic composition, which you couldn't study in Denmark at the time. So I went to London at City University to study with uh, Dennis Morley, who I was a, a big fan of, um, yeah. who was uh, into all this yeah, electroacoustic composition, acousmatic music. What was that like when you were studying with him? It was just like a... A revelation when I came there because even in my childhood I was kind of thinking about sound in different ways than pitch and duration like rhythm and, and stuff but more like something you know that you could form as a piece of clay so when I suddenly got aware that Dennis Smalley and all so a lot of other people in, in that field also Trevor Richard the way they talk about sound was just so uh, inspiring, you know, totally free of like rhythm and melody and more like recording sounds, processing sounds. And also a very important thing is a conservatory, at least how it was in Denmark at the time, it was very conceptual. So some composer would come and give a seminar and speak like three hours about a composition. And then in the end of the lecture, we would hear it and see if we could hear all these kind of things. And then the lecture was kind of finished, whereas when I went to London to study there, it was like they started out by playing a composition, and then the discussion was based on uh, listening responses. So as an audience, I couldn't ask, you know, what was your idea about form in this piece? Then the, the teachers, they would literally object and they would dismiss that question. You weren't allowed to ask that. So instead, 
you could make comments about your listening experience. And that was just a way to make people just think about sound, you know, what they hear and discuss uh, what they hear. And when I first came there, a lot of the terminology they were using, I, I didn't understand anything of it, but it was just so um, fascinating to get into discussing, you know, what you hear, basically. It seems like a really important thing to practice having your own opinion of what it is that you're hearing and what you're perceiving, and then also practice communicating that to people. Yeah, that's true. But I think in, in those um, situations where we had those kind of discussions, it, it was more like based on the listener's experience, and then you could sort of reflect on that rather than saying, this is my piece, this is about that, and you should hear it like this, then be open to how other people would, would actually hear and interpret the sound. Right. As the audience, you have to have your own opinion yeah, of, yeah, of the true. piece. Yeah. That's very cool. And it's funny how it's just a total opposite of being told what you're supposed to be hearing. Mm, yeah. So from there, you made your way into Limbo. Limbo was in 2010. Yeah. Tell us about how that project came about and what your role was on it. Before then, I'd done a couple of short films. So I had been very interested in working with the moving uh, image, and I found that process very inspiring. I had a collaborator in Austria where I did the soundtrack for one of his films, and he also did like video for some of my music. Yeah, that was really... Um, an eye-opener for me to start to experiment with that kind of electroacoustic or cosmetic composition in relation to image. Because when I sit in the, in the studio, the tools that I was using and the sound that I was using was the same as sound designers was using. So there wasn't that much of a difference. Yeah, so that just opened a, a lot of opportunities. So I did a couple of short films where I did like both sound design and music. And then, yeah, one day I, I came across a Limbo Project. I was just reading about the director in the newspaper, totally, like, random. And, uh, <laughs> and um, like, the visuals of the game looked very much, like, open to interpretation. You have just a silhouette world, which means that, you know, the boy can look different for you than he does to me. And there's a lot of space for interpretation. There's a lot of ambiguity which is stuff that I like to play with and which is also the essence of ecosmetic music where it's like you can recognize some qualities in the sound, but you can't say that it's that sound. Right. And you actually used a bunch of very innovative techniques with regards to the mix and the processing of everything. You had a, a wire recorder that you were using to run everything through, is that right? Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think one of the things that I like about like watching old films as the kind of distorted sound. I was looking into some references, some like samurai movies and, and also like Tarzan and things like, like from, mm -hmm. from the 50s. And what occurred to me is like the sound of the jungle is just optical noise. But you automatically, you make that association when you're watching the movies that that's the sound of the, of the jungle. So that was one thing that I, I wanted to play with. So, for example, when the boys in the woods, there's no sound of woods. It's just like optical noise. And, and then, yeah, you encounter like a single bird, I think you hear in the, in the background. So it's uh, there's not a lot of birds in that, in that wood. And um, I think if you took like a high quality recording and put it into the game, it would uh, totally break that feel that would be too clear 
mm-hmm. in a way. Um, so those kind of sounds that had like a very strong identity, I would run through the wire recorder and then it got very distorted and uh, sounded like, like in, an, in an old film. So you can say that I was trying to level out the associations within the sound. So if you had a sound that was very hard to recognize, like walking on gravel or something, I would make sure to make that strong so you would have that association, whereas if there there wasn't any dialogue or anything like that, but if you have something like, again, like a bird that's very clear to us, then I would process it it heavy. So I'm kind of leveling out the uh, associative qualities of the sounds. Did that take a lot of experimentation? Yeah, definitely, um, and especially with the the wire recorder because they're so old and the, the wire is like a hair, and it breaks all the time. And yeah, it's just. Uh, <laughs> how does that even work for people that don't know how a wire recorder functions? Like, what's it like working with one? Yeah, it's uh, it looks like a, a reel-to-reel recorder. I guess it was the technology you had before that. The one I had was like a dictaphone, and it says like electronic memory on the front you know so it's actually uh, like an early hard disk or something you know that you could you could store stuff on uh, magnetic wire and and the wire is literally as thin as a hair like a human hair then it just spins like a real to real recorder hmm. but again it, it breaks all the time and then in the manual they show you how to make a knob you know to put the to put the wire together <laughs> And also there's not a lot of high frequencies in there, so sometimes I had to pitch the sound before running it through the wire recorder and then run it down and then pitch it again to get a bit more high frequency. So you would pitch it down and record it and then track the recording back and pitch it back up just for high frequencies? Yeah. Wow. So how much experience did you have with that particular type of recorder before this project? Like, was that something that you knew kind of broadly what it was going to do, or was that just a total experiment? I think I, I like for, for every project that I work on, I like to find a unique approach. For me, like working with composition and also sound design, I think the most important thing is like finding an overall sound. Like when you launch Limbo, it's like a world, you know, that you go into yeah. uh, and it's recognizable. For Lingbo, I just did some research initially on you know how film were produced back in the day because it has certainly has a retro look but it's not like a game retro look, it's like a film retro look. Um, it's just like interesting to read about these recording apparatus being so big that you couldn't take them out of the studio. So you had to bring all the sound sources into the studio Of course, I couldn't get access to that kind of equipment, so I was just looking at what kind of consumer gear would you have back then, and that appeared to be the wire recorder. Wow. And was that your first big interactive project? No. People are often surprised when I tell them that Limbo was my first game, but I think that's because I've done quite a few interactive projects before just happened to be other medias like theater performances and sound installations so thinking in it's kind of non-linear ways it was new to me at that point yeah because the thing to me that's that's so impressive about that is just how ambitious it is to find that sound and to use your tools for that sound in the context of a big interactive project 
given that you do have to approach interactive so much differently than linear media. Mm -hmm. Um, so that's a lot of things to stack on top of each other all at once, especially with, with the new team that you're working with. And that's why that's so impressive. And that's why that game ended up being so iconic, I think. Yeah, it was definitely one of the, the things I think, of course, like visually it looks very different as well, where everyone was competing of standing out like visually with all kind of colors and suddenly a kind of a black, white picture is the stuff that sticks out. Right. Uh, yeah. And that also speaks a little bit to people finding their own aesthetic. You know, you, you sought that game out as a designer and as a composer, because it seems like it spoke to you. And you, you had an idea of what you wanted to do even beforehand. Yeah, and uh, of course, also the freedom to explore these things. Yeah. So from there, with the success of Limbo, you moved to Inside, and you were audio director on that one as well. Yeah, that's true. Uh, on Limbo, I came in rather late in production. I was actually only working on that for 10 months, so like towards the end of uh, production. I think it's been in development, like in production for two years and maybe in development for a total of five years or something like that. But on Inside, I was involved from the very beginning. So that obviously gave a lot more opportunities to try things. And you really got to dictate your style to the entire soundtrack. Can you talk a little bit about what your overarching theme was in regards to the style of it and to the feel of, of what you were doing in that game? It sounds weird to say, but it's less uh, iconic than Limbo because Limbo had this kind of striking retro look, whereas Inside is a bit more hard to find the, the right words. Traditional? Or the ra- <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I don't know. It doesn't look traditional, though, but it doesn't have this kind of flickering, bleak sound. It's still pretty dark. I think my, my main approach was to take some inspiration from B-horror movies from the 80s. Because there was something in the visuals that I thought that had the kind of quality. So one thing I experimented with was using synthesizers, like for the score, which is, I've never really been into um, synthesizers. I don't own one. It's um, always, <laughs> always been into recorded sound. But again, I wanted that kind of feel into it. So I started to collaborate with another Danish composer, Søs Gunvar Ryberg got her involved. She was also working with sound design on the project. And then I had the idea of working with a human skull. That's something that I actually always wanted to do, but I thought in in this particular game it made a lot of sense. And it was actually before the game was named Inside. I think that was just a coincidence, but uh, (laughs) that's, that's kind of fun. So the idea was that I read an article once with a singer who were annoyed that the recording of her voice sounded different than from what it sounded like in her head, you know, which we all know. We all always think it sounds a bit like weird when we are recording, unless we are used to hearing that. And that's, of course, because when we speak, we hear like a mixture of our voice projected in the room and then also like projected through our skull, like our jawbone, mm-hmm. which connects to the ear, so it sounds like very different. and. The singer, she actually preferred that sound. So she suggested it to, I think it was Stanford University, and there was written a paper about it, how they measured it and made an interpolation EQ curve that they could apply to the recording to make it sound like it sounded in her head. It's just like the inspiration. So I acquired a real human skull and then attached it to... Wait, 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 wait a minute. 
You acquired a real human skull. Uh, yeah, I borrowed one. It was. <laughs> <laughs> Did you give it back? No, I have it here. So, uh, it's just right behind me. Wow. Mm. So did you shoot an impulse response at the skull or were you just recording everything through it? I did make like impulse responses, but most of the time it's more interesting to record sound through it. So in my studio, yeah. I have a, have a lot of hardware also, like a, a reel-to-reel recorder, and I just took it up in Nuendo or whatever I'm using as a plugin. So I just run it out of the converter and into the device and then directly back again. Um, so the way I hooked up the skull was by attaching it to a transducer. This is like a speaker without a membrane. Mm-hmm. Contact mic? No, it's kind of the opposite of a contact mic. Okay. Yeah, so you place sound into the transducer, and then instead of it moving a, a membrane, it can move whatever you attach to it. So if you put the transducer in a window, then the window will make sound, which sounds amazing, by the way. Oh, I see. So I mounted the skull and the transducer, and then I attached contact microphones to the skull at different places and then recorded it back into my system. So it was wow. it worked as a kind of a, a filter. Getting back to the synth idea, so a lot of these synth um, fragments, uh, segments were then processed through the skull and then treated afterwards. You can still get the feel of the synth, but when I tried to put actual synth music in the game, it was a bit like it was a statement. It was more like a kind of a, a stylized thing, which I didn't want. Yeah. I just wanted the association, not a kind of a statement saying, oh, we are having a, a synth score here, if you see what I mean. Was there a learning curve on the synthesis side as well? I'm someone that I'm about 20 years into my career, and I've only just started with synthesis myself. I've been very, very microphone and editorial heavy for my whole career, and I'm finding it to be a really, really deep rabbit hole Mm. if I want to go down it. What was your experience picking it up like that? Yeah, but I haven't really been into it, so I was collaborating with Suskonne Rueber again, so she would basically making like musical mock-ups, improvisations, small compositions, and then I would take parts of that, maybe process it and run it through the skull and yeah. That's cool. And you know, it's it's not uncommon to reamp synthesis. It is uncommon to use the skull to do it. Mm. But that that whole idea is the idea of taking things that come from sine waves and really giving them a place in the world that makes them feel alive. Yeah, yeah, that makes sense because often what I don't like about synthesis is the more like static part of it. So what I usually like about sound is the kind of complexity. So yeah, yeah, if you can get the synths to resonate in a real object and then record that, and of course a lot of people do that, then it comes more alive, so to speak. So I'm fascinated a little bit by your process here because it seems like a lot of what you're doing is you're finding some real-world object with which to manipulate the sounds on the way through. But in the context of interactive stuff, that's a lot of elements to do it. So how are you keeping yourself organized? What are you doing as far as like presetting and then routing and then chopping and labeling back? It kind of depends on the project. I'm doing a project now where I'm actually taking notes on my processes so I can go back. But usually I actually don't do that. And it's because it's a kind of a a special, very different project that I'm working on now. But otherwise, I actually like, you know, composing and making sound. It's just like a long row of decisions. You know? And I, I just <laughs> want to make one decision and then move on. You know? so, right. so I actually enjoy the fact that I can't reverse engineer. I can't go back and change it. It just means that I have to make some decisions along the way rather than saying I can decide that later because 
it's always like A leads to B, B leads to C, and then you cannot just change A, then it will change the whole row of decisions right. that you have made. So it is like a chain of decisions. So in that way, I think like working on Limbo and Inside, they're relatively small projects. So I think it's fair just to be a bit messy. Yeah. Do you ever get nervous halfway down that path going, oh no, I might be heading in the wrong direction here. I've got to do something to recover. Yeah, I think there's always some correction to do at the very end from this stuff that you did in the very beginning. I, yeah. I always experience that, but it's never like I have to redo everything. And it seems like in order to do that kind of a process, you'd have to have your whole palette basically built on the front end before you start running things through real world stuff and bringing them back. Is that right? No, I think that's actually also a process that you record stuff and you process and then... Yeah, like an iterative process. So you learn what kind of sources fit that object. And the same for actually working in nonlinear media in general. I think there's a lot of iteration going on, like uh, making the voice sound for this big meatball in inside that you encounter. Uh, <laughs> in the end, there was a lot of iteration going on there, like going to the studio with the performers, just improvising, doing stuff, then taking it back and finding out how to edit the sound and how to integrate it into the game. And then you learn a lot about you know, how that works and how you could have done the recordings better. So you go and record again, and that just uh, continues. Can you tell me some of the lessons you've learned? What's, what's some things that you've approached your recordings with that you'll never do it that way again? I don't know, because I'm, I always go to re recording with a total open mind. Or at least like the first time I go to a recording session, I'm just going there with the people that I'm working with and then I just try to remain open. Also, I don't know if I'm really bad at directing, but as soon as I <laughs> give directions, I just experience that the, that the quality goes down. So I'm really cautious <laughs> about that. You know, like if something is really good, then I just don't say, uh, yeah, a little more, a bit more of that or something. It's just like, know, shut up and then just uh, let the person do what, what he's doing. Because, That's right. Yeah. I say 90% of direction is casting. Yeah. So it's all about who you're working with. Mm. And you've also worked with some very interesting instruments, right? Yeah, those uh, Wolfenstein, the new Colossus. Wolfenstein, yeah. I worked on the Bashi instruments, which are those big, like, massive sonic sculptures. Uh, yeah. But yeah, again, those, like, different instruments and just going there and, and playing around and starting to imagine how you could use the sounds. And that's also very much a very experimental uh, process. Was that something you sought out? Did that come to you with luck and serendipity? Yeah, I was working with uh, Nicolette Becker, who um, has been working on a lot of uh, films like Gravity and Arrival and mm -hmm. doing all kind of experimental uh, recordings. So I've been working with him on, I think, three projects now. And usually, it's just like he has a, like a big library and also records sounds all the time. So we often like talk on Skype and then talk about what I need and he, he sends some, some sounds. But at some point, he just said he's been to this workshop where this... Uh, big instruments are and he just said like this is insane for the project you have to come and then uh, <laughs> I went down there for, for two days and we just played around they're beautiful instruments what did you find in there? it's this 
Bashi. It's like you play them on um, crystal sticks, and then they have like big metal sheets that's resonating. So you're setting the sheets into um, vibration by playing on these uh, crystal sticks. It's a bit like playing on the rim of a, a wine glass. And some of them just sounds like massive trombones. And uh, yeah, they're really, uh, they're really beautiful. had a couple of days in there so you were just looking for anything that sounded interesting and just recording it all and bringing it back yeah it's a bit tough because i knew that i would probably not go back then you know i didn't have resources to iterate on that one so i had to start thinking about what kind of stuff i, I could do with it but it never came to the point where we were performing stuff that we thought would be used in a specific context so it was yeah, it was very much yeah just like playing around just using the intuition there and do you set that kind of like as a boundary once you get it back do you say all right i'm going to do a whole composition with just what i recorded today yeah i, I do that i think sometimes it's nice to have this kind of limitation and say okay i go to a recording studio and then i go back and then i do at least one cue with only that uh, instrument uh, right. which I also did in, in this case, and then a couple of other tracks, which was also mixed with other stuff. But there's one which is uh, based purely on these uh, instruments. And it's funny, the degree to which limitations can unlock creativity that then overflows into the next project. Yeah, that's true. Uh, although I worked on, um, after... Um, Wolfenstein New Colossus have worked on Wolfenstein Youngblood, which is set later in time, like in, in the 80s. It was weird. I was imagining that I would use or reuse a lot of sounds, but it's just like when I played just one of the the source recordings, it's, oh no, that belongs to uh, the New Colossus. So it was too obvious in your mind. It was too iconic to the previous game. Yeah, it's like the sounds very quickly comes to belong to a specific project for me. So yeah. it's like, it's always from, from scratch, recording sounds and then building some up. The only occasion I used it were where there were like a specific reference back to the other game, then it was obvious to use it. But apart from that, it was all new material. And then after Youngblood, we come to Control, which was this year... In control, you were you were a composer on that, and, and part of your task was to create music that integrates seamlessly into the soundtrack in a way that doesn't necessarily always feel like music. Yeah, see, say that the um, control was very different in terms of the process. I think it's a bit hard to describe. There's like different levels of interactivity in music. So, like, if you want the music to react within three seconds for example you don't want to have like a long elaborate theme going on so it's, there's <laughs> always a trade-off between like internal musical logic and then the interactivity in the game so it's always a balance and you have to make that decision all the time and also in, in young blood there's some 
with my tracks where they're quite long segments and then there are other where they're pretty short. I think generally a five-minute cue would end up in 100 segments that can kind of shuffle around and, and change corresponding to what happens in the game. But with control, it's almost like being generated on the fly. So I yeah, remember the first time I had to deliver stems for that one. I just like bounced some, you know, like standard stems with the different layers in the music and like, oh no, we need all the sounds separated. So if you imagine you had something like a, a fast rhythmic movement, like then they would need like each in one file. Oh, wow. <laughs> So also, even even though maybe I did like half an hour for that game, I delivered almost like 4,000 assets. So in a way, it's, it's difficult to describe, but it's more like creating instruments in the game that can be played by the game. So an example could be that a composer would often build like an instrument in a, in a sampler like contact something like that and, and then you can play on that instrument so in the game we kind of built those instruments and we were using wise i don't know how many of the listeners are familiar with that but it's kind of the tool one of the tools that we can use for integrating sound into the game it's a bit like the equivalent to pro tools which you use for synchronizing sound with the with the image yeah, so we're using this um, program called uh, WISE and you can build like MIDI instruments. Uh, so you can build like complete instruments and then you can trigger it with um, MIDI notes. You've got the game generating MIDI notes into WISE? It's actually not how it works uh, yet. I think that would be uh, the case soon. So they were cheating in a, in a way. They had to generate the MIDI files, but then they would just run a Python script to generate, you know, a lot of MIDI files that were mm-hmm. slightly different, you know, to create this kind of randomized patterns. That seems like it takes an insane amount of communication and documentation between you and the audio programmer. Yeah, it's, um, you could say in a way that it was like I would do like small sketches demonstrating my ideas and then I would hand over all the assets to them and then they would create a, a virtual Martin C. Anderson who would uh, uh, put the sounds together <laughs> in, in the game. It's, it's, it sounds crazy and it's, it's, it's crazy in, in, in some way. And there's uh, good things and bad things about it, but I think uh, it's like it's really interesting for me to play the game and sometimes I hear music that I think sounds awesome. and uh, That you didn't write... Yeah, it's, it's like, it's my sounds, but I never heard it before. You know, and, wow. and maybe the people working there haven't heard it before. So it's even like when I did the arrangements for the soundtrack release, I used the, the sketches that I've done and polished those, but I also took the wise session, their wise session, and I was just playing around, you know, hitting play, just dragging the different folders, like um, numbers of enemies, uh, health slider and all that. And then, you know... It's just like music coming out, and then I would capture that and integrate it into the into my arrangements. Wow, that's way cool. It seems like it takes so much trust between you and people implementing it to be sure that something awful doesn't come out. Yeah, I think um, you probably need the right state of mind. I could imagine a lot of 
composers wouldn't like that. But in a way, I see it as the ideal way to do game music, to make a kind of a meta-organization of the sound where you organize how the the game organizes the sound so that it can do it on the fly corresponding to, to what you're doing. So it's something that I pursue myself and in that way it was just very interesting for me to work with people who do that at that kind of high, very high level. And then what was the collaboration like? Like to what degree were you giving them ideas versus them giving you ideas? It started out by having some meetings and also meeting with the, the game director and just getting a lot of information about the game and doing some sketches and getting feedback and yeah, and then it becomes this kind of iterative uh, approach. So I wouldn't uh, implement anything because in my studio I had the WISE project available. So I would make like basic implementation, build MIDI instruments, but also just put my sounds in there and trigger them in ways that I thought would, would make sense. And then I could, of course, take that and, and start to mess around with it. Mm-hmm. I'd like to finish off a little bit with talking about the tools that you use. So when you show up to work, what are the things that you put your hands on every day with regards to microphones, hardware, software? At the moment, I'm running uh, Nuendo. And then, yeah, just a lot of hardware. I just love to play around with, uh, with hardware because there's also a lot of software. I'm very much into fast Fourier transform where you can kind of take one sound and then multiply it with, the, with another. It's a bit like a vocoder. And also convolution. I use a lot of convolution not for doing like reverb, but taking one sound and convolving it with another. So that's, that's the kind of way that I, that I get my source, recording stuff, processing it, and then what happens often that um, when I do that kind of digital processing, they get this kind of side effects like smearing and things like that. And that's re- really where hardware, again, as we talked about earlier with synthesis, that's kind of where hardware comes into play. Like if you run it through a spring re- reverb, it just adds a layer of complexity to the sound. And then again for implementation, most of the projects I've been working on are using WISE, so that's basically where I end up organizing the sounds. And it seems like, from a philosophical perspective, it's super important for you to have holistic textures to entire projects. Yeah, that's really what triggers stuff for me is, yeah, it's all about the sound, like the, the sound quality of it can get a certain kind of um, texture that's really keeps me going. Nice. What other works of art do you look at for inspiration? What films do you like and that kind of stuff? It's mostly film and also games. Whenever there's a, an interesting game coming, I'm, I'm definitely playing that. At the moment, I'm looking forward to Death Stranding by Kojima. And for film, it's both like uh, blockbusters, but also um, experimental films. And again, I think one of the reasons why I ended up doing what I'm doing is because I've been inspired by sound designers. It's kind of funny, like back in the day when I would watch like extra materials on on DVDs, I always thought the sound design 
parts were much more interesting than the music parts. And um, yeah, I think it's just like it's so fascinating what you can do with sounds that are anyway supposed to be there, what kind of extra layers you can add to them and how you can almost create like music out of it without being the kind of music that most people identify music, but uh, <laughs> still kind of apply the same things to it, you know, like using sound to support the structure of a film or a game for that sake. So that's what I find inspiring. Nice. That's a beautiful place to wrap up there. Martin Stick Anderson, thank you so much for jumping on there. I really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks a lot for having me. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. 